Hey folks, Jared here. Today I'm joined by Dr. Johanna Mellis. She specializes in Hungarian sports history, and we're going to be discussing the legendary 1956 water polo match between Hungary and the Soviet Union known as the Blood and the Water Game. This episode was edited and produced by Jonathan Selling. At SimSec, we believe victory in the maritime domain starts with great ideas communicated compellingly. Right, fight, win. Beginning with Giving Tuesday and going through December, we are holding our annual Right, Fight, Win holiday donation campaign to support SimSec into the new year. SimSec's proud to say since our founding, our content has been free and always will be. Especially as more websites build paywalls or pursue intrusive advertising, we hope those in the SimSec community who value our free no-ad model will consider supporting us with monthly donations. Finally, I want to take the opportunity to recommend our partners in the SimSec Podcast Network, The Bilge Pumps. You can find Alex, Jamie, Drac, and a pile of iron brew bottles wherever you download your podcasts. On that note, I'll turn it over to Kimber's men. You're listening to Sea Control, hosted by the Center for International Maritime Security. Aloha, mates, and welcome back aboard Sea Control. My guest today is Dr. Johanna Mellis, and we're going to be discussing the famed 1956 water polo match between Hungary and the Soviet Union, known as the Blood in the Water Game. So, Dr. Mellis, thank you so much for joining us. Could you tell the listeners a little bit about your background, please? Absolutely. And thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Um, so I am a historian of Cold, of Cold War history. I focus on Hungary specifically, and I look at Hungarian sport and sort of how Hungarians use sport as a way to sort of um, navigate relationships with each other and sort of international relations during the Cold War. And um, I'm an assistant professor of world history at Ursinus College, which is about 40 minutes outside of Philly, uh, Pennsylvania. So not to immediately deviate from sort of the questions that we already discussed, but could you tell me a little bit more about how you came to focus on Hungary as your focus area? That's a, it seems to me to be an unusual choice and I'd like to hear a little bit more about it. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a very sort of specific country. It's, it's a small country, especially from an American perspective. Um, So sort of a sort of a multifaceted way that I came to it. Um, So first off, I came to sort of sport history because I was an athlete growing up and I was a D1 swimmer in college. And when I was in graduate school, I coached uh, swimming part time just to sort of make some money and kind of get outside and all that good stuff. And so I've always been interested in sort of sports and and how um, individual how athletes sort of live their lives. And then when I started graduate school, I knew I wanted to study somewhere in Central Europe. Um, just because I found that history really fascinating, but I didn't have the language skills required to study like German history or Russian history, which are kind of the two main countries that a lot of people start studying in the region. Um, and you need to have those language skills usually to go into um, graduate programs. Um, but I was already living in Gainesville, Florida, which is where the University of Florida is. And they have a Center for European Studies, which is a government funded center to fund graduate students to learn lesser known languages. And Hungarian was one of the languages that they offer because there is a Hungarian language teacher there. And I already knew a little bit about Hungarian history. And I initially started studying um, Hungarian Jewish history and sort of what was life like for Hungarian Jews after the Holocaust, after World War II. And so that's what my master's thesis was about. Um, And I started learning Hungarian and I got a scholarship that paid for my tuition and gave me health insurance and, and, and gave me a stipend to live off of, which was, you know, all well and good. I didn't have to take out sort of loans to do all that. Um, And then I went to Hungary and just absolutely loved it and just love um, kind of making Hungarian friends and and really love being there. And then in terms of my topic, when it came to my uh, dissertation, 
my advisor knew that I had been an athlete and she encouraged me to start looking into sport history as something that she thought I'd be interested in, in the long term, not just like an academic topic, but something that I was kind of personally tied to. And so that kind of set me on like a really long road, which is um, Hungarian sport history. And we're going to talk about it with the questions that you very carefully crafted, but Hungary has a really kind of amazing sport history considering it's such a small country. And so it's just been a really, really cool topic to be able to uh, research and study. Well, thank you again for coming on. As a reminder, all opinions are our own and not representative of any institutions with which we might be otherwise associated. So we'll spend a little bit of time setting the stage. And I'd like you to first explain a little bit about Hungary's role in World War II and where it stood at the war's conclusion. Absolutely. So Hungary was on the losing end of World War II. They were an early ally of Nazi Germany. And that was in part because um, Hungary after war, well, in, in World War One, Hungary had been part of the Austro-Hungarian or, or Habsburg Empire that had also allied with Germany. And because they had lost World War One, the Western powers or the Allies had essentially broken up Austria-Hungary into a bunch of smaller countries, um, thinking that if they broke the countries up into sort of more ethnically focused countries, that they would uh, there, there would be less political tensions between them and hopefully prevent another world war. Uh, But then as Germany gained power in the 1930s, Hungary increasingly looked to Nazi Germany and Hitler as a potential ally because Hungary really wanted to regain the lands that it had lost um, after World War I as a result of the peace treaty. Hungary had uh, sort of been separated from about two thirds of the rest of its country from before World War I that had been given to Romania and Czechoslovakia and Yugoslavia. And so they really, it really wanted to gain that land back. And so it allied with Nazi Germany and then was on the losing end of World War II. And so, um, and then after World War, and then toward, you know, towards the end of World War II was when the um, allied powers sort of divvied up Europe and, and, and um, the, the Western powers sort of gave quote unquote Eastern Europe to Stalin, not really knowing what was going to happen at all, but just sort of hoping that Stalin wasn't going to try to take over Eastern Europe, which as we know, it did. Um, and so at the end of World War II, Hungary is, is um, kind of in ruins, just had been bombed really brutally in the last year, although had not been kind of destroyed as much as Poland and some other countries, but it's still been bombed pretty heavily, had just lost um, hundreds, hundreds of thousands of Jews, in addition to Hungarian soldiers who had lost their lives. And so it was pretty, pretty beaten up after World War II. And, and then and then the Communist Party takes over in 1948 and sort of starts the, the road to communism during the Cold War from there. It's a I don't, I don't want to say we're that, but for such a small culture, it is uh, really kind of an international sporting powerhouse, particularly in the uh, time frame that we're going to discuss. How do water, water polo culture develop in a country that's landlocked? Yeah, that's a great question. And one sort of project that I've I've been I've had in the back of my mind for a while, but just haven't started to research, haven't had the time to research enough. Uh, but in, and I'll try to be really brief about this, but essentially, and, and Hungary is good at lots of other sports too, but essentially in the 19th century, when Hungary was part of Austria-Hungary, um, Hungarian nationalist leaders really wanted to demonstrate that Hungary should be an independent nation and that it should be a very strong power compared to like Austria and Germany's other countries. And so Hungarian nationalists really threw a lot of their effort and their money into developing sport and using sports and sport victory as a way to demonstrate uh, its national strength and sort of its, its validity as a national kind of power. And so Hungary is actually one of the first members of the International Olympic Committee 
1894, even though Hungary was not an independent country, right? It belonged to Austria-Hungary, but it formed a national Olympic committee. And uh, because it was part of, because it was one half of the Austro-Hungarian empire, the IOC or the International Olympic Committee allowed Hungary to be one of its founding members. Um, And then in terms of water polo, Water polo was one of those sports, along with swimming and horseback riding and horse racing, that Hungarian nationalists um, introduced in the sort of public sphere to middle and upper middle class Hungarians, again, as a way to sort of teach male bo- men in particular to have strong bodies, to be disciplined, to feature hard work, and sort of all these things that, again, they thought to be really key to being a strong nation, a strong national power. Um, and now Hungary is landlocked, but it does have the Danube River, which runs through Budapest in particular and, and through much of Hungary and obviously through many other countries as well. And then there's also a really big lake called Lake Balaton, which is a very popular destination even today for people who want to go to the lake. You know, they don't have a beach nearby, so they go to the lake and there's like lake culture is really huge there. But so bodies of water and and there are other rivers as well, but bodies of water became a really key site again for like recreation and also nation building. And so a lot of people start getting, uh, when I say a lot of people, middle, middle and upper class Hungarian nationalists started getting involved in swimming and canoeing and water sports and water polo is one of them. And then, um, and then during the interwar period, so in the 1920s and 30s, while Hungary, again, is trying to kind of scramble back, you know, its lands and kind of, again, demonstrate that even though it's a, and it's a much smaller country than before, that it, again, is sort of is a strong European nation. And they use sports as a way to do so. And in the early 1920s, the government passes a really influential physical education bill, which again, aims to instill like physical culture, physical, physical activity and national values into, into students and young people. And, um, and, and for, for lots of reasons, they kind of throw a lot of effort into swimming and water polo as a sport that Hungarians could and should be good at. And Hungarians already won lots of medals in swimming and very quickly became, began to earn a lot of medals in water polo. And it, it's not just Hungary. Um, today, Croatia has a really good water polo team. You, uh, Serbia has a really good water polo team. Uh, Italy, Greece to an extent. So it's sort of a lot of those Central European and Mediterranean countries that today still have a really strong water polo cu- culture. But arguably, Hungary has one of the strongest because it's won, I think it's something like Olympic, sorry, nine Olympic gold medals, um, not to mention lots of silver and bronze and world championship medals. And so it's really just repeatedly been an enormous water pole sort of powerhouse, as as you talked about before. Between uh, water pole and the Hungarian national football or what we would call soccer team, is fair to say that the mid 50s were a golden age of Hungarian sport? And if so, why was that the case? Yeah, so this is actually something that I've I've been revising. So I I in my my scholarship I've said for a long time, and others have said this too, that the 1950s indeed is a time, a sort of the golden age of sport, right? As you mentioned, football team, the Hungarian football team is undefeated for for about um, half of the decade, and and the 1952, so the, sorry, the 1948 um, Olympic Games, Summer Olympic Games in London, um, Hungary wins um, the fourth most medals of all participating nations, um, you know, even, you know, compared to like the U.S. and Germany, 1952 in Helsinki, they win the third most medals of all competing nations. Only the Soviet Union and the U.S. win more medals than them. Again, for a small nation of 10 million, that's really amazing. 
Um, and, and so sort of when it comes to like the medal count and when it comes to wins and losses, Hungary is definitely like a global sport power. But this also is the first decade of communism during the Cold War. And this actually overlaps almost perfectly. Well, not perfectly, but neatly with the, the sort of high point of, of Stalinist, of sort of the most harsh repression of communism. And as a result, um, this is the period when, when athletes in particular are the most harshly repressed compared to any other moment in Hungarian history. For example, there's a, a Hungarian football or soccer player who was really mercilessly killed in 1954 because he tries to defect to the West to get a, a contract to play abroad. And he also wants, he's trying to defect with his, his, his lover because they're having an illicit affair. Um, and the secret police find out about it and, and they essentially set him up and they catch him and they execute him as sort of an example of this is what will happen if you try to defect. So that's why I say I'm, I'm sort of trying to still working to figure out, you know, how to call this time period when, when, as you said, Hungarians are so, so successful at so many sports, but then it is also a period of really intense repression and the harshest repression of of the broader public and Hungarian athletes. So on the one hand, in terms of wins and losses, it is a golden age, but in terms of like athlete repression, it's the worst period in its history. So I haven't really actually figured out sort of a phrase to call it, Um, but I think it's an interesting conversation to have is sort of when we have repression, but also medals sort of how do we reconcile this? And I haven't really come up with a good answer for that. Now, that's a really good point about uh, the repression piece. And I guess I hadn't fully considered that. Obviously, there's going to be some of that that's going to come up as we discuss this. Uh, but as you mentioned, post-World War II, Hungary falls behind the Iron Curtain and the Soviets start to take advantage of that relationship for their own sporting purposes here. And at one point, the Hungarians are actually asked to train the Soviets. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. And I actually meant, I, I looked up the date, but I didn't write it down. So I forgot what date it was. It's, I can't remember if it's 1950 or 1953 um, or another date, but essentially um, the Soviets, the Soviets were sort of behind the other Eastern Bloc countries in the sense that during the interwar period, the Soviets really were not sure, were sort of debating internally whether they should participate in things such as such like the Olympic Games, such as the FIFA World Cup, because they really they believed that if they were going to compete, they needed to win. But they weren't sure if they were going to win. And so there are a lot of internal debates. And Jennifer Parks is a fabulous historian who does research on this. And there are all these debates about whether they should participate in these international sporting events. Meanwhile, Hungary and Romania and Poland and all these other countries that fall under the East uh, under rule during the Cold War, during the interwar period, they had, I mean, they had been long participating in the, in these international competitions. And so uh, when these countries fall under the Iron Curtain during the Cold War, um, a lot of these sort of, quote unquote, what we call satellite countries, as in satellites of the Soviet, of the Soviet Union, um, they help or they, they are sort of required to help the Soviet Union get up to speed and sort of learn training techniques. And so water polo was one way that the Hungarians do this. The Soviets come to Hungary to, to videotape and to learn what the Hungarians are doing. Um, the Soviets also send their gymnasts to Hungary to sort of do the same thing. There are a lot of these stories and the Soviets go to Czechoslovakia to learn hockey, right? So it's happening in sort of many different forms. Um, but but essentially the Hungarians and these other countries help to lay the foundation for the Soviets to be very successful at, at many sports, especially in the early 1950s. And what's the sequence of events starting in 1955 that culminates in the Hungarian Re- Revolution? 
Absolutely. And um, I'll actually sort of take it back a little bit earlier than that. Um, 1953 is considered a really huge watershed moment when it comes to communism in Eastern Europe and the Cold War, because 1953 is when Stalin dies. Um, and up until that point, so about from 1947-ish to 1953, and each of the, the satellite, you know, Eastern European countries, they had had really harsh, really harsh uh, sort of Stalinist oppression where there have been like, show trials and lots of people thrown in sort of local gulags or, or labor camps and just really, really harsh repression, really long bread lines for bread and other sort of basic consumer items. And then Stalin dies in 1953. And even though a lot of Soviets actually genuinely mourn Stalin's death, you know, a lot of Eastern Europeans are kind of thinking like, oh, what's going to happen now? Like, what is the form of communism going to take? And actually in Hungary, um, uh, Hungarian leaders, they get rid of the Stalinist um, ruler who is um, Matyash Rakoshi, and they implement uh, a sort of more moderate communist leader who starts implementing a lot of moderate reforms. And so that's in 1953 and sort of life in 1953, 54, 55 are a little bit easier than before. Um, and sort of things are starting to relax a little bit. Um, and then in 1954, there is a really famous uh, football, there's a famous World Cup match between West Germany and Hungary. And Hungary, because the football team had been so, so successful, Hungary was slated to win. And then the West Germans famously defeated the Hungarians. And it is such a shock. And people are so upset about it in Budapest that there are actually really massive riots in Budapest where essentially fans who had been gathered in the National Football Stadium to listen to the radio broadcasting of the match, they are all together and they essentially uh, express their frustration against, you know, for, for, for the team losing and against the state. And there's a massive riot in Budapest. And actually Hungarians call this like a quote unquote soccer revolution that predates the 1956 revolution. And then in 1955, um, again, even though repression Hungary is much less, in 1955, Austria and, and, and the Soviet Union signed a neutrality act to declare Austria as officially a neutral country. And Hungarians are pretty upset about this because they're, they're like, we share a border with, with Austria. Why can't we also be neutral, right? Like we, you know, Austria-Hungary having these historically strong relations. And so Hungarians, you know, have been hoping that maybe the, the Soviet Union would do the same, but they do not. Um, and then 1956 and then 1955, 56, um, there are major shakeups in the Soviet Union where Nikita Khrushchev um, has the quote unquote secret speech where um, there's there's a huge meaning of the Communist Party and, 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 and uh, Khrushchev. In order to sort of discredit Stalin and legitimize his own rule, he essentially denounces Stalin and his crimes and essentially lays bare to people at the meeting, you know, these were all of Stalin's crimes and we need to do better. Like we cannot treat people this way. And then the secret speech gets leaked and it's no longer secret. And so there are these massive ripple effects all over the Eastern Bloc. And in the summer in June of 1956, there are massive protests in Poznan in a Polish city, um, massive protests there. And so this is all leading up to 1956 in Hungary, where um, essentially in, um, on October 23rd, which was um, actually just we're, we're recording on October 24th. So a day before the day recording on October 
1956 is when um, Hungarian students uh, begin sort of gathering and they're not quite protesting, but they're gathering and they're coming up with sort of these demands saying we want to reform the version of communism we have and we want to sort of have more freedom of speech. We want to have more freedom to, to, to learn what we want education wise. Um, and then they sort of start marching in the streets and it, it starts out very peaceful. But then the communists start sort of shooting at, at these student revolutionaries. And that's when it breaks out into a full on revolution. And so it sort of is like a really long and sort of um, process by which Hungarians are increasingly more fed up uh, with first, you know, the harsh Stalinist rule. And then even though communist life gets a little bit easier, you know, there are these broader international developments going on. They convince Hungarians like this might be the kind of the time to strike. This might be the time to do it. Um, and so all of this is leading up to the events of October and November 1956 in Hungary. I want to go back to uh, one thing you talked about, the 1954 World Cup match between West Germany and Hungary. And that was kind of my first introduction to Hungarian sporting dominance. As, as I was learning German, our instructor showed us a film called uh, Das Wunder von Bern, or The Miracle of Bern, which is a German language film about that, told mostly from a German perspective, but there's a whole lead up at the beginning of the movie where they described the dominance of the uh, Hungarian football team in the early 1950s. And as you said before, it's like, I don't think they had lost a, an international match in something like half, half a decade before. So I'll throw a note, a note for that or a, a link to that in the show notes at the beginning for the listeners if you want to go watch that. It pairs pretty well with the documentary that we're going to talk about in a little bit here. But uh, while all those events were going on that you were talking about, particularly like the 1956 piece of it, um, where was the water polo team? And how did the water polo team find out about the revolution? Absolutely. So, I mean, the um, when the when the revolution broke out, that, right? So this is the sort of the end of October um, 1956, and then um, and I know we're going to talk about the, the we're going to talk about the the blood and the water match, but the blood and the water match uh, was going to be in Melbourne, Australia during their summer months, which was going to be at the end of November to through December 1956. So the revolution breaks out really like a month before the 1956 uh, summer revel sorry summer olympics began and so the olympic the various hungarian olympic teams have been training for a long time and were gearing up to leave um, and so when protests break, when, when the protest and the revolution breaks out it's really unclear it, about whether the hungarian olympic team is actually going to leave to go to melbourne and um you know athletes are you know like running all over the city trying to make sure that their families are safe trying to make sure that they are safe that their friends and family are safe um the olympic um the hungarian olympic team actually releases a statement and one of the newspapers declare that they support the freedom fighters that they support the revolutionaries and and it's actually a very bold statement because at that point they don't know what's going to happen um there are a few days um from sort of very late October to very early November when the Soviet tanks retreat from Hungary and kind of leave Hungary and the revolutionaries think that they win. And Imranad, who was actually the, 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 the person who was installed in power in 1953, he's, he's, he's um, put back in power in 1956 and sort of tries to mediate between the different revolutionary groups and emerges as a leader and announces that Hungary is going to leave the Warsaw Pact. And so um, the, the Olympian, the Olympic athletes are really kind of debating, like, should they go? Should they not go? And also, you know, flights are not really going in and out of Hungary. Um, so there's also sort of a transportation issue. So 
the International Olympic Committee, which famously, even today, proclaims that it does not involve itself in domestic matters, the IOC very much wanted the Hungarian Olympic team to go to Melbourne. And so they actually intercede uh, for the Hungarians, again, getting involved in, in, in domestic affair, political affairs. And they try to convince like the Czechoslovaks and the French and, and, and the French airline to help the Hungarian Olympic team leave and sort of defund um, because there's like no funding, like, you know, bills are not getting paid because the, the, the country is in chaos. And so they can't pay the, the, the plane tickets, for example. And so um, what happens is that the Olympic team is able to leave finally. And they get on, I think it's, they get on a bus to go to Austria. Sorry, they get on a bus already, go to Czechoslovakia. And then from Czechoslovakia, they fly to, to Melbourne. Um, and, but, but when the Olympic team leave, they think that the Hungarians have won the revolution, right? So they are traveling on their way to Melbourne thinking that, that hopefully their families are safe, thinking that the revolutionaries are, the, the revolutionaries are winning. And then they get to Melbourne and that's when they realize like, oh crap, actually the Soviets have returned. They are, we think it seems that they are crushing the revolution, the revolutionaries, and they don't know what's happening to their families. And um, out of the whole Olympic team, um, only one person really knows English with any kind of fluency. Um, and so he is like re- reading the newspapers and, and essentially explaining to everybody, this is what's happening, which I can't imagine like the trauma of having to kind of explain what, what is going on. You know, we don't know what's happening with your families and um, athletes are totally, I mean, you just can imagine they, they don't know what to think. Um, some of them are not sure, like, should we even compete? Should we even be there? You know, I don't know. My family's alive. Um, and so there are all of these like internal discussions within the team about what to do. Some athletes want to like, denounce the communist party in Melbourne and like make a really bold statement. Some athletes really don't want to do that. So there's a lot of even like, I don't want to say turmoil, but like, you know, disagreements um, within the Hungarian Olympic team members about what to do. Um, and, and so, and so again, this is all leading up to the blood and the water match. Um, now, one thing that's interesting though, is that the Olympic team in Melbourne, including the, the, um, including the representatives of the communist party who were there. And that's the thing about, um, communist rule during this time in these countries is that because the government placed so much importance on using, um, victories using sport as a means to, to sort of demonstrate the validity and the strength of the, of the communist political system is that the leadership, sort of the, the sport officials who govern sport were communist bureaucrats. Like they were communist through and through. But what I found in my research actually is that um, they were, they were representatives of the communist state, but they actually had really good relationships with athletes. They really tried to look out for them, especially after the athlete is killed by the government in 1951 so these officials are actually in pretty good relationships with athletes. And there's this really famous picture on people can listeners can Google it if they want. And in the Olympic village in Melbourne, the entire Olympic team with the communist bureaucrats are standing at attention at the flagpole and they raise the flag of the revolutionaries. This is after the Soviets are like crushing, you know, crushing the revolution. So this is actually a really interesting moment where communist sport officials sort of side with the revolutionaries and sort of a to support athletes and what they want to do. Um, and then I know we're going to talk about sort of the defections and what some of the athletes do later on in the episode, but um, you know, the, the officials are actually really sympathetic to the athletes because they 
also don't know what's happening, right? They also don't know what's going to happen to their families. And so, you know, you would think that like these communist officials would be trying to like repress these athletes. And I say, think, you know, according to like our sort of American sense of what communism was like, but there's actually pretty good relations uh, between athletes, between these uh, communist officials. And they're actually much more sort of in support of each other and, and sort of more of a team than maybe we would sort of think from our sort of American lens about what communism was like at the time. The team, as you mentioned, ultimately, they still participate in the Olympics and then they wind up meeting the Soviets in the semifinals, the team that they had been forced to train uh, years prior. And now they're going to participate in what's going to come to be known as the blood in the water match. So what was the mood in the stadium as that match approached? Absolutely. Um, I'll say it, it is a little bit hard to get a sense of what the atmosphere was like, in part because we have to sort of rely on like Australian press and sort of Western press about what was going on and the Western press and Australia and the U S and the UK and essentially people who were like, quote unquote, you know, like on the capital side, you know, they very much wanted to portray, you know, um, any kind of matchup between Hungarians and Soviets as like a real moment of sort of East versus West battles. And, you know, this is communism, you know, we're trying to defeat communism because we're part of sort of the capitalist and democratic West. So it's a little bit hard to kind of um, parse out the mood. But I mean, in general, people are pretty in agreement that it is very tense and that they don't really know if sort of politics are going to spew out between players. That's kind of the big mystery is like, what's going to happen if these Soviet athletes um, compete against Hungarian athletes? And this isn't just in water polo, other water polo again, because of sort of what happens during the match ends up kind of being the big flashpoint that we know about. But it also kind of manifests in different in different sports as well. Um, although I know we're going to talk about the documentary later on. Um, but some of the athletes in the documentary themselves kind of admit that, you know, they knew these athletes, right? Like, even though there were tensions between them, they also, there also was a fair amount of respect between them and they've been competing each other for years. Um, so again, there are, their politics are involved and there are tensions, but between the athletes, they also know that they're just athletes and they're just sort of normal human beings. But in terms of the mood of like the spectators, I think people are really on edge to kind of find out what is going to happen during this game. Is this game going to represent politics or is it going to be kind of more about sports or, or somewhere in between? Now, we've mentioned the uh, documentary a couple of times for a second hand. Now, uh, the documentary is called Freedom's Fury. I think I found it on Amazon. It's a documentary about this match, very specifically the events leading up to it, a little bit about the aftermath as well. And I'd recommend it to uh, to anybody who's more curious about this because it's really good. You've got all these uh, first person interviews with the participants, both on the Soviet and the Hungarian side. When you think about what I guess I would call from the Western impression, the Soviet Olympics malfeasance. So I think like the 1972 basketball game all the way up to, mm-hmm. um, I'm trying to remember what, what my mother was so uh, upset about. Is it the 1994 Olympics uh, figure skating with Viktor Petrenko versus Paul Wiley and Paul Wiley finishing second um, and th- thinking about who the judges were. But it's always a, sort of the Soviets as the aggressors, bad actors, um, was that the case in this game? Because I did not leave the documentary with that impression necessarily. Yeah. And I mean, I want to echo first, like definitely, I think it's a fantastic documentary and I used to show it all the time in class because as you said, the first person narratives are so gripping. Um, actually, a lot of these people have sadly died because that was made in, I think, 2004, between 2004 and 2006 or something. Um, and also just shows the mechanics of water polo. It's a very brutal sport. I, I 
I was a swimmer and we would play water polo uh, during the holidays. And like someone would always end up with a bloody nose because it is a very brutal game, which actually, again, shows that it's actually not a surprise that there were sort of blood in the quote unquote water. Um, Yeah. So I don't, this is not going to be a great answer. I don't actually know if I've sort of decided about how much the match is about sort of Soviet malfeasance or not. I mean, I think that water polo, water polo is a very brutal game. As I said, I mean, I had a friend in college who played water polo for her high school club team and her, this is going to sound, this is going to be gross, but her eyeball was almost detached. Like this is such a brutal sport and sorry if listeners are really grossed out by that. I I do apologize, but like it it is kind of an inherently brutal, not inherently brutal sport, but it lends itself for, for athletes to kind of, to get very physical with one another. And because there's all this water splashing, I think it's really hard for officials to sort of see what's going on. But so what happens is that, you know, this match is going on and there are already sort of some pox shots or some cheap shots um, by, from both players. But what makes this, uh, you know, the quote unquote blood in the water match is that there, again, there's some tussles between players that have been going on throughout the match. And then there's a Soviet player that seems to punch a Hungarian player in the eye. And the Hungarian player is named Irvin Zador. He ends up defecting and coming to the U.S. And he's the youngest player on, I think, the youngest player in the team. And is like a real sort of up and comer and is a very sort of young, energetic, energetic guy. Now, what's interesting is that that happens and immediately, like, you know, people are kind of getting agitated and like whistles are blown and the game is halted. But what's interesting is that uh, one of the main one one of Hungary's best water polo players ever, his name is uh, Deju Jarmati. And he is the captain of the Hungarian water polo team. And he claims in his memoir that uh, what happens is that after after uh, right after the, 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 the punch is thrown and the athletes get out of the water, that he claims that he instructed Zador to like to like show the camera what happened and to like. Again, give that image to the camera so the pictures are taken. I haven't been able to corroborate that. Like that's just mentioned in his memoir. And, you know, some people want to kind of portray themselves as having a bigger moment in history than maybe they actually did. So that's why, again, I'm sort of um, on the fence about, you know, to what extent to sort of uh, believe what he says or how much is of him is, is sort of puffing up his chest. Um, but even, even so, that does demonstrate a, a bit of an awareness of sort of the role of the press and sort of how this might be portrayed. And also an awareness of how, you know, the Western audience members might see this match as being something that's more about politics. Um, I mean, I do, I would bet that the athletes, especially the Hungarian athletes, I would bet that they were bound to have tensions pent up about like, we're playing representatives of the country that might be killing our family and friends back home. Right. I think that's like a very real and very sort of human response to have again, whether that should devolve into like punching. I, I don't agree with that, of course, but I, I, I guess it's not a surprise that sort of tension spill over. Um, but I think to your point about sort of um, the impression that you leave from the documentary, what I do appreciate about that documentary is that, you know, the athletes, do seem to see each other as humans and as humans that they relate to and like they refer to each other by name um and then you know there's the the kind of uh real cool uh scene at the end where you see the athletes get back in the water and they're playing with each other which i think is actually really good and like you said really kind of upends our sort of western perspective of like well it must have been soviets versus hungarians like it must have been like a battle and, and people must still be mad at each other now and like actually no these athletes are playing with each other and they're laughing and joking and, and it doesn't actually seem to be staged although you know it might have been sort of encouraged 
encouraged, but it doesn't actually seem to be staged. Um, so that's why, like, you know, just to reiterate your point, I really think viewers should watch it because I think you could get a lot out of it. And it's just kind of an easy watch. Um, but that's where, again, I'm just not quite sure how much of it is actual aggression. I'm sure that existed. But I think in terms of it being this huge thing that like Westerners tend to know about, I do think it's a little bit overblown. Um, And then the last thing I'll say, and I I know we need to move on, is that it's not actually clear to me to what extent from a Hungarian perspective back home, to what extent it served as any kind of sort of moment of triumph or resistance for Hungarians back home. And that's because I've actually looked at the newspapers in Hungary to get a sense of what were how what did people know about the match back home and you know after the match you know the hungarian communist party you know they're in the middle of trying to to quell the rebellion and so they're trying to eliminate right any kind of mention of any you know hungarian soviet tensions um so so the 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 newspaper reports report that they lost the match but they don't report really anything about the punch or the blood or anything like that. So it's unclear even back home what the reception was of the match. And, you know, naturally some of the athletes return home and word spreads about what happens. But again, it's unclear literally until after 1989, it's unclear how much people actually view this match as like a moment of anti-Soviet resistance or anti-communist resistance. I have a feeling it's something that emerged more after 1989 and perhaps even more after this documentary. Um, I just don't know and I haven't been able to do the research for it. You had brought up Freedom's Free and you said that you had some critiques and observations. Did, what do you just discuss cover all those or did you have any additional ones that uh, that you walked away from the film with? Yeah, I mean, one one um, kind of critique that I have, and it's more been because um, just of, of information that I found out more recently so I have a, a good friend who runs this other podcast called Crossing the Lane Lines, which is a really fantastic podcast about like black aquatics and, and black swimming and, and, and um, water polo and synchronized swimming and stuff like that. And he um, interviewed this uh, really amazing person named Janai Kerr, who was a black, um, black American, who is a black American, he's still living, who was a member of the U.S. Olympic water polo teams in the early 2000s. And in this interview, he he shares really interestingly about how when Freedom's Fury was being filmed, how the filmmakers hired the, the U.S. water polo team at the time, the men's water polo team at the time, and they, they hired them and they, they filmed them playing water polo um, to use as sort of, um, to de- again, to demonstrate what water polo is about, to kind of, because that's what they do. They show viewers, this is what water, water polo is about. This is how it's played and sort of as educational background. Uh, and what he shared during this this interview on Cross the Lane Lines was that um, it was he the, um, he was a member of this team, and there was another Black uh, American player who was a member of this team who were initially included in the filming of these scenes. But what happened was that the filmmakers decided that, um, and I should say that anytime a filmmaker, whether it's a document documentary filmmaker or anything else, whether they're doing like historical fiction, um, they always have to make decisions about what details to include and exclude in order to maintain like historical accuracy. These are, these are decisions that every filmmaker always makes. Um, and these are very difficult decisions, but what the filmmakers decided to do is that they decided that because there were no uh, water polo players of color and in the initial water polo match that they needed to refilm all of the scenes in order to exclude the two black water polo players. And I mean, I, I'm actually kind of curious how much it must have cost to do that because I mean, any like delay of filming can cost like hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not more in terms of, you know, renting 
pool space, um, paying, you know, camera crew, paying lighting crew, sound, not to mention, you know, the directors and, and, you know, everybody else. And of course the athletes. Um, And so that's just kind of a minor critique that I've had is that, you know, again, while every documentarian and sort of filmmaker has to make decisions about which details to kind of stick to and which ones to kind of flub or whatever, is that they they chose to essentially ensure that sort of the white character of the match was maintained. Um, actually, even though, um, I'm, I'm pretty sure actually that there were some Jewish players, that's actually something I've been meaning to look into, um, at the time, at the time in 19, 1950s with, um, you know, Jews, both in the U S and Hungary, not quite being white the way many of them are today. Um, but I just kind of found that really interesting as sort of what details, um, documentarians and filmmakers choose to include or exclude. And for whatever reason, you know, this was something they wanted to maintain, even though I'm sure there were like many details that they decided to flub or, or flat out, you know, falsify in order to film the document, the documentary. It is still a fantastic documentary to watch. I still think people wish to watch it, right? But just sort of like a minor critique of sort of something to think about as we're watching it. Well, I had a couple of impressions I wanted to share with you, and you can tell me what you think of my takes here, but these are just a few things that caught my attention. The first being, I walked away from the documentary thinking that Blood in the Water is a little bit of an overstatement, and it's based almost entirely on that post-match photograph. Mm. Like, I did not have, like, I understand that water pose inherently physical game and like it's it is that way because you know only maybe 10 percent of the human body is actually exposed at any one time so you can't see what the other 90 percent of the two bodies are doing to one another beneath the water surface surface but is that like do you think that is an accurate statement as as we talk about this game or is that more a reflection of the political environment um rather than the actual physicality of the game that's a wonderful question. And actually one I haven't even really thought about before. So thank you for asking it. Um, I mean, I guess, it, I mean, I think you kind of pointed a little bit to it is that, right. It sort of depends on what is meant by when we're talking about blood in the water. I do think that when people say that, I think they're referring to both the actual like bloodiness and then also the politics. I think they're seeing them as kind of going hand in hand, but you're right. And that it isn't like a, you know, a blood match, right? It isn't that there is like an all out fight and, you know, like it isn't like, you know, a hockey match where like you do see like entire teams kind of going at each other, right? It isn't that kind of level of bloodiness. Um, I do think that, I, I do think that it's overblown in the sense that, right, it's sort of based on one, like, you know, real visible uh, image of there being blood there. And I think, and I think it's also a lot of people reading politics into it, um, and, and that's kind of where, again, I and I haven't had time and, and people have kind of approached me. I have a colleague who's approached me and has wanted to sort of write about this. And I just I have my hands full and I've been able to. But I just I think it's something that needs to be interrogated more, which is actually why I really like your question. Right. I think it's something that needs to be interrogated more. It's seen as like one of the as you mentioned, you know, you mentioned like a slew of kind of really famous kind of Soviet US or Soviet other, you know, they're also like in 1968 after the Prague spring, they're like the Czechoslovak hockey riots um, was sort of a similar thing. Um, There's also the 1980, I think it's a night 80 or 84, the, the miracle game, the Lake Placid hockey game. I always get 80 and 84 mixed up when it comes to that, the, the winter Olympics, but whichever ones are in Lake Placid, where again, it's the Soviets 
and the U.S. team, and there's the miracle, the Disney movie that's really popularized that, right? So it's hard to get a sense of how much were these things actually meaningful, significant at the time, compared to how much are they significant kind of now that we're looking back and we're sort of looking for examples and sort of what role does the press play? So, I mean, I'm inclined to agree, actually, actually, because I'm thinking it through, you know, when you asked me that question. Um, I do think it's it's overblown. And I think it's a matter of a lot of it is people wanting to read communist and Cold War politics into it when, you know, like you said, blood is really, you know, physicality is part of any kind of match. Right. It just so happened to kind of happen in this match. And then people really jumped into it and wanted to kind of read into it. So one of the other things I found really odd here was that everybody in the film, whether they're Hungarian or, well, I think the Hungarians use Soviet more frequently frequently, but I did not hear a single quote unquote Soviet player refer to themselves as a Soviet team. They all said Russian mm-hmm. over and over and over again. I'm trying to think uh, uh, what the atmosphere like was in 2004 that could have contributed to that, but there was nothing that really struck me. Was, do you have any impression based on that observation um, of why they were leaning away from referring themselves as Soviet? Yeah, this is a fantastic question and kind of a difficult one. I mean, I mean, I do think I do think there's been a general attempt for people um, to sort of distance themselves from certain terms such as like Soviet um, and really kind of refer to themselves as like ethnically Russian or, or something else as a way to kind of distance themselves from that time period. The other thing is that maybe at the time, maybe in the 1950s, they saw themselves as Russian and not as Soviet, right? So I think it kind of depends. It's, it's sort of a, it's, it's a fascinating question. It's very sort of multi-layered in that. I think it depends. You know, I think if we were to study it, it would sort of be, you know, like how, how did people view themselves in the 1950s? Like, yes, the Soviet Union had been in existence for decades, but I don't know, maybe people had sort of closer affiliations with their ethnic identity. And this is not my specialty and my colleagues who might listen to this and have have expertise and sort of issues of ethnicity and identity could could answer this much more definitively than I can. So sorry if listeners are rolling in their eyes because I don't have a great answer to this. Um, But I mean, and even in the other interesting thing is that even like Hungarians today, like they would never refer to themselves as Soviet, but they would a lot of them would refer to to the communist period of rule as like the Soviet rule or as foreign rule, even though officially the people who were running their country were Hungarians, right? They were ethnically Hungarian, a lot of them who had been educated and trained in the Soviet Union, but were ethnically Hungarian, Um, so I, I think it's a matter of people wanting to kind of distance themselves from like the, the kind of identifier of the Soviet Union or being Soviet. Um, the other thing is that in order for Russia as a country, you know, as an independent country after 1991, which is after uh, when the Soviet when the Soviet Union dissolves, in order for Russia to kind of um, connect itself, it, how do I say? In order for Russia to sort of demonstrate some kind of continuity in like a sports sense. Right. It's not going to call sort of victories under when it was the Soviet Union as Soviet victories. Right. They would want to call it Russian victories to kind of demonstrate this long history of Soviet sport victory. So I think it might be that as well. Um, And then also, you know, it's 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 called like Russia in like United Russia after 1991. So it it could be an attempt to sort of demonstrate some kind of continuity there. Um, But that's a really excellent question. Excellent. Sort of my last uh, observation there, too, is you mentioned the reunion scene at the end. So the Hungarian teams 
they get together they're in budapest there's lots of shots on them by the by the bridge i think they're up on uh what is the castle that's up on the hill there the fisherman fisherman's bastion Mm-hmm. Um, and it, and then they get in the pool together in Budapest and it was obvious that, that these old guys are all 70 plus years old, but they were still athletes. Uh, you could see like the way that they move in the pool is very live and, you know, cat-like in some instances. And it was, uh, I don't know, it was still a bit, a little, maybe less intimidating for you as a former division one athlete, but for like a normal human being walking around and it's like, oh, these guys, uh, they, they were actually Olympic athletes in the past. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you left with that impression or not. Absolutely. I love seeing that at the end, they just, they slip into the water and it looks like they haven't skipped a beat. I mean, that's, I think really, really cool is that, and they, they are so clearly like professionals and experts. And I mean, I mentioned earlier, like we would play water polo during the holidays. We would have like a, a, a half of a practice off or something. I was terrible. I mean, I can swim. I can, I haven't swam in years, but, um, you know, I could swim very, very well and I could tread water. But when it came to like throwing a ball, I mean, I don't, I don't have good hand-eye coordination and I'm not like a good basketball player. Um, so that those skills just didn't quite transfer. And like, and one time I actually did get a bloody nose actually when I was playing water polo, like someone, I think it was someone threw a ball and it hit me in the nose or something. And, and that was not, you know, these again are, you know, was, were not guys I was swimming with, they were not like super strong at throwing per se, because it wasn't like what we practiced, um, but just again, to kind of show how brutal the game can be. Um, but I mean, I love that. I love kind of seeing them. They're real experts in the water. And I think what's cool, like you said, you know, they're older men in their seventies. And actually, I actually meant to look and didn't have time, but I'm pretty sure a lot, a lot of them, the, the men have passed um, since, since that was filmed. Um, and it's just really cool to see that. Um and, and, and obviously see that water polo meant a huge deal in their lives. The other thing that I would say is I think, think that's something that's different between European sort of physical uh, culture and sort of sport culture is that whereas in the U.S., I feel like people do, if you do sports, you do it really, really intensely when you're younger, and then you don't always keep it up as you get older, whereas European sort of sport culture is much more that like a lot of people do it recreationally throughout their entire lives. Like whenever I'm there, there are so many people playing. I mean, what we would consider to be like pickup basketball or pickup soccer, but like do it like once or twice a week and and play for decades with the same people. So I actually would not be surprised if a a lot of these men continue to play in like adult leagues or sort of continue to at least get in the water and play around. Um, and then the other thing is, is Budapest and, and the scenes where they film those scenes. It's um, at one of the most beautiful baths in the world. It's called the Gellert Baths. Um, and it's clear that um, a lot, I mean, a lot of older people go to these baths um, when they're retired to like play chess and they hang out with their friends. So sort of water culture is a bit more, I mean, year around, but also is much more kind of ingrained in their culture, at least in Hungary. I don't know about Russia, but in Hungary than it is here. Um, but I absolutely, I love that part at the end when you see, kind of seeing them play around. I just think that's really cool. Well, then a final question to wrap up. Uh, what what happens to the majority of the water polo team post-Olympics? Yeah, so um, I only know um, the Hungarians, although I can sort of guess about the, the Russians, right? So a lot of the, so I'll kind of look at it more broadly. Um, so there are something like 120 uh, members of the Hungarian Olympic team delegation. And so that means like co- not only athletes, but coaches and sort of sport officials who represent the communist state. 
Um, now, at least um, uh, it's between a third and a quarter, at least a third to a quarter of them end up defecting to the West. Um, and a lot of them, basically, it's like 34 Hungarian um, athletes and or coaches and officials end up defecting to the U.S. Um, and actually four Romanian, uh, four Romanian water polo players also leave and come to the U.S. They are ethnically Hungarian from um, Transylvania, but they are officially like um, in terms of citizenship, they're Romanian, but they're also water polo players. And they end up coming to the U.S. and they come because there's this secret operation between um, the CIA and Sports Illustrated and the State Department and um Time magazine, where they essentially help, they they essentially gather interest from Hungarian athletes in Melbourne to figure out, you know, do any of them want to come to the U.S. and they want to use these athletes as a propaganda coup to demonstrate, to kind of parade them around the U.S. to demonstrate, like this is what freedom is like. We rescue these athletes and they are living in, in sort of a free world. And look, they're great athletes and they're going to help us train great American water polo players, or swimmers, or gymnasts, or fencers. And so, thirty-four Hungarian. Um, athletes and coaches come to the U.S. Um, and then actually in total over 300 um, Hungarian athletes defect to the West total. So not just to the U.S., a lot of them go to Switzerland and Austria. Um, and the, those are the numbers I've been able to corroborate. And I, I don't there are I'm sure many more. Um, some of the um, athletes and coming back to Hungary, including a couple water, there are three water polo players in particular, including Deju Jarmati, who I mentioned earlier, who is the captain. He comes to the U.S. in February 1957 or March, February, March 1957, and then he ends up coming back. Um, and some of them come back because they miss family. Some of them are coerced to come back. Some of them come back because they realize that they're not going to get a job that pays them enough money to be an athlete or a coach in the U.S. And so the, the communist government at home can give them a, a good paying job and give them benefits and all these things for being an athlete, whereas in the U.S. they'd have to live in poverty. Um the ones that come to the U.S., most of them don't continue to be athletes because at that time you couldn't really have a career being an athlete um, unless you came from unless you came from wealth. So a lot of them end up having to sort of ditch their careers and go into other sports. Um, some athletes have in poverty. Um, but but because sort of the revolution essentially opens up this door where um, athletes can leave, right? They're not sure what's going on at home. Um, and then also other countries are willing to take them in. Some of them go to fascist Spain to, to play for a Franco state. Um, some of them stay in Australia. Um, so it sort of is, is a window of opportunity for athletes to leave to go um, somewhere, somewhere differently. Um, and that's what I've focused on in a fair bit of my research. Well, I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. Joanna Millis. Joanna, where can we find you online and what's your next project? Yeah, so um, I'm extremely active on Twitter. I spend probably too much time there. Um, hi there. Um, my handle is um, at Johanna Mellis, and I'm a co-host of the End of Sport podcast, where we examine sort of the ways that uh, people use sports to be sort of harmful or abusive, discriminating, and sort of we, we examine ways to make it to be all the things that we want it to be, to, to kind of support healthy um, healthy people and, and sort of um, allow people to, to do um, achieve what they want to achieve for it. Um, and my, my project that I'm working on right now, very slowly, is I'm working on my book, 
which is um, about um, how Hungarians um, use sport as a way to navigate Cold War and international politics. So I looked at Hungarian athletes, such as the ones I talked about here, and I worked at communist, um, state, uh, communist sport officials, which I talked about a little bit here, and sort of how they collaborate with athletes. Um, and then I look at the International Olympic Committee and sort of how these three groups interacted during the Cold War when we kind of think of um, sport as a, as a site of sort of a lot of competition and, and sort of clashing and kind of east-west politics. And my research shows that actually a lot of people use sport as a site of cooperation to kind of agree to sporting terms, to agree to participate in games, uh, to agree to work with each other to achieve their own ends. And um, yeah, that's what I'm working on. Well, thank you again to listeners. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time.